Thank you very much, Rusty. Very kind introduction. Uh, we appreciate your service on our board. Uh, this luncheon, as Sally said, is a part of a series of events we're uh, holding uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow um, in the Northern Virginia area uh, to enrich our understanding of uh, the economy of this region, its, both its challenges and its opportunities and prospects. Um, we do these trips <clears throat> uh, quite regularly, um, and uh, it's view it as vital uh, to our mission as a regional reserve bank in a federated um, central bank structure uh, to understand what's going on on Main Street, if you will, um, in addition to Wall Street. Um, and part of the genius, I'll just remark as a surprise, as a aside, that viewed as a part of the genius of the founders of the Federal Reserve System that they constructed uh, the system in a way that encourages uh, so many uh, Federal Reserve Bank staff around the country to devote so much of their uh, resources and time and effort to understanding uh, local economies. Very vital to what we do. Uh, my topic today, though, will be the outlook for the national economy and economic policy. And here, the <clears throat> story is simple, and I'll elaborate on it a bit. Uh, in nearly two years um, ago, uh, in the spring of uh, 2009, the United States economy hit bottom. Now, our economy has recovered since then, uh, but the pace of expansion has been disappointingly slow uh, by a wide number of accounts. Unemployment remains high. Uh, many sectors uh, lag the recovery and remain in the doldrums. Now, I don't want to minimize the extent of lingering uh, weakness in economic activity, but I'm going to argue uh, before you today that we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the economy has been expanding at a significant pace recently, and the fundamentals for future growth are strong right now. now before we take this look at the economic outlook, um, I have to say I always do this before my remarks. This is another feature of the federated system. Uh, that makes up the Federal Reserve that my, the remarks are my own and the views don't necessarily reflect those of any of my colleagues on the Federal Reserve System. But uh, some of my friends in the audience know that's sort of obvious. Um, so let, let me just start here about the disappointing nature of uh, the recovery. And this can be seen uh, most vividly by uh, making what I think is the most apt comparison to the recoveries following two post-war 20th century U.S recessions that were nearly as sharp and deep as the one we're in uh, that we just came through, namely the recessions of 81-82. Uh, you'll remember Volcker and high oil prices, and then 74-75, uh, you know, Nixon, Ford, and again, high oil prices, uh, part of the story there. In the first seven quarters after those recessions ended, real GDP growth, um, that's the, the way we measure output uh, broadly and most comprehensively, averaged 5.9% at an annual rate, twice as fast as in the current recovery. And accompanying that rapid output growth, job growth averaged seven and a, I'm sorry, four and a half million persons in those two recoveries. Two factors account for how sluggish this recovery is in comparison. The most obvious is the collapse of housing construction. We built too many homes between 1995 and 2005. That is very clear in hindsight now. Many of those homes are now vacant, and they make great substitutes for new construction. As a consequence, residential investment, the, new, the spending we do uh, each year on uh, new, uh, new homes, fell by 57% from the end of the housing boom uh, to the end of the recession. 
and it's fallen even further during this recovery. In contrast, in those two other uh, recoveries that I, I mentioned, um, residential investment increased an average of 40% in the first year of the recovery. Um, an astounding difference. Now, <clears throat> housing is the most obvious factor dampening this recovery, um, but residential investment accounts for only 2.2% of GDP of our, of our economy at this point. That's down from 6.3%. used to be 6% of the economy, now two and a quarter, essentially. A much larger factor in economic growth is consumer spending, and that accounts for over 70% of the economy. In the first year of this recovery, consumer expenditures increased by less than 2%. And this is in contrast to those two other recessions we're talking about, where household spending grew by an average of 6.5% in the first year of an expansion. Tremendous difference in consumer spending. So the outlook for the consumer is key to the outlook for the economy as a whole. It's easy to understand why consumers were cautious at the beginning of this recovery. A large number of households experienced unemployment during the recession, and many more who retained their jobs were worried about their own job security. On top of that, wage growth, the way at which wages, uh, wage income was increasing, declines during the recession. And declining housing prices, which were unusually large in this downturn, significantly eroded the value of the housing equity uh, on the consumer balance sheet. In addition to that, there was a, a tremendous fall in stock prices, uh, very sharp during this recession. So consumers experienced a, a significant fall in their net worth, their, the absolute value of their, their assets minus their liabilities. And they responded in the way that they typically do uh, to falls in their net worth and, and falls in their current income by deferring non-essential spending and working on rebuilding their balance sheet, building up their assets, paying down their debts. The fundamentals of household spending have improved significantly since the recession's end. Most importantly, a number of indicators make it increasingly clear that the labor market is headed in the right direction. The unemployment rate has fallen by over one percentage point uh, from its peak. Employers have added an average of 232,000 jobs per month over the, on net over the last three months. And household balance sheets are looking better as well on the whole. The stock market, for example, has more than doubled uh, from its recession low point. And as a result, the net worth of households has increased by $8 trillion uh, since early 2009. Even though home prices have been fluctuating lately, uh, there have been some decreases in the last few months, um, they're no longer in a virtual freefall the way they were in, in 2008, 2007. As these fundamentals have improved, so has consumer spending. Retail sales, for example, one good measure, rose 5.2% um, in the first year of the recovery, and in the next nine months improved at a 10% annual rate. Because this, con this expansion is solidly grounded in proving fundamentals, I'm expecting uh, robust growth in consumer spending to persist. I think households will continue to see improvements in job markets, in their incomes, and in their wealth. And I think that'll support expanding consumer spending going forward. So while consumers are critical to the recovery, there are other sources of strength for the U.S. economy as well. Exports of goods and services have risen nearly 20% since the end of the recession and have added two and a quarter percentage points to real GDP growth. 
the key fundamental factor for export growth is for export demand is growth abroad. And here the fundamentals again look excellent. Although growth in the highly industrialized countries, Europe, Japan, and the like, has been similar to our own growth rate, many less developed countries are growing particularly rapidly. This is especially notable in the, the two most populous countries in the world. China's GDP grew at 9.7% uh, annual rate last year, and India's GDP grew 8.3%, just off the charts growth numbers. Such exceptional growth is driven by the rapid movement of large workforces from pre-industrial sectors with pre-industrial uh, technologies into enterprises that use up-to-date capital goods and organizational uh, techniques. And that process generates a discrete and sizable productivity gain for any of the workers that make that transition. Japan's growth, metal, uh, growth miracle following World War II was similarly propelled, and it lasted for several decades. And that suggests that the current crop of rapidly growing uh, emerging economies can look forward to several decades of growth as well. So I think the export demand we've been seeing is likely to continue to contribute strongly to U.S. growth for the foreseeable future. I think business expansion should also make significant contributions to growth this year. Investment in equipment and software has grown over 25% since the end of the recession, despite the only modest uh, rate of growth in the demand for the output of businesses. Opportunities to streamline business processes and uh, reduce costs through productivity-enhancing investments, those appear to be widespread across an array of sectors, um, you know, outside of IT and the things you traditionally associate with technological innovation. As demand growth picks up, um, it's going to provide further encouragement to capital spending plans at businesses and, and further stimulus to spending on equipment and software. So I think the outlook for the business investment looks good. All told then, the economy has a lot going for it, but at the same time, there are still challenges ahead, and these are substantial. As I noted, housing activity remains depressed. And given how extraordinarily large the inventory is of vacant homes and the ongoing wave of foreclosures that's going to weigh on market for at least a year, home prices are likely to remain under pressure for some time. I think the best case for residential construction is to see a slow, uneven advance, and I think something closer to flat um, is a bit more likely. Another challenge to the U.S. economy uh, stems from the recent run-up in energy prices. The world price of crude oil has risen more than 60% since last summer, and the economy is facing large increases in the prices of gasoline and other petroleum products. Consumer spending is likely to be somewhat restrained for a time as households adjust to the bigger bite that these higher prices are taking out of their take-home pay. So I'd be concerned if I expected substantial further price increases from oil uh, and petroleum products. But at this point, the futures market, the market for future delivery of uh, oil and petroleum, um, forecasts modest declines. If the market's right about that, uh, then the effective energy prices on consumer spending should be only temporary. But having said that, our experience over the last decade demonstrates that just because futures markets are, are forecasting a decline in prices, that doesn't preclude future price hikes. It doesn't mean it's absolutely going to come true. So uh, we, that's something we need to keep an eye on. A longer-run challenge for our country uh, is fiscal policy. The trajectories of federal government spending and taxes have diverged 
and that's left us with a budget deficit that was above 10% of GDP last year. The amount of government debt outstanding is therefore rising more rapidly than GDP itself, and there's no relief in sight under current regulation. GDP is going to continue to grow slower than the growth in debt if we don't make changes. Of course, that can't happen. National debt cannot grow faster than our ability to pay forever. That is simply not feasible, and it will not happen. The real question is whether our elected officials make timely adjustments to the paths of spending or taxes, or whether a crisis forces a hasty decision. The array of efforts underway just over the Potomac to address our fiscal challenges is encouraging. But until credible changes are made to align spending and taxes, an overhang of uncertainty is going to make long-range planning more difficult than it needs to be for households and firms. Despite all these challenges, most forecasters predict that overall growth in economic activity um, will be solidly above trend for the next few years. Emerging market growth and innovation opportunities um, are going to continue to drive business demand and spending, and consumers are going to continue to regain confidence in their future income prospects. And under that forecast, unemployment will continue to decline and income growth uh, would improve. So it's a projection I sign on to, um, although as always, actual outcomes may differ on one side or another, be either higher and lower than that. And it's also worth emphasizing that the rate of growth may not be a, a very smooth curve. It might fluctuate from quarter to quarter around that projected trend. And we should be careful not to read too much into every month's little data wiggles. One reason that the consensus of forecasters is so positive about the national economy is that they believe the inflation environment is going to remain relatively benign. Now, granted, inflation has surged to over 4% at an annual rate over the last few months in response to the large upswings in energy and commodity prices. But there are good reasons to believe that surge is temporary. The prices, as I said, of energy futures indicate that market participants generally expect spot prices to gradually decline over time. In addition, surveys of consumers and firms and financial market prices as well indicate that market participants generally expect overall inflation to decline this year. So in the absence of further energy price increases, I think we're likely to see inflation subside to a rate closer to 1.5%. We should not take that outcome for granted, however. Input price increases have squeezed profit margins for many firms, and we are increasingly hearing from some that they're looking for an opportunity to raise prices later this year. I think that if firms see robust demand growth, they're going to be increasingly willing to pass on price increases to their customers. Such increases can be common at this stage in the business cycle. In late 2003 and early 2004, for example, non-food, non-energy price inflation ratcheted up to over 2% and overall inflation rose to 3%, an average 3% for the following four years. This may not have been the worst of all possible outcomes, may not have been an unmitigated disaster, but I don't think of it as a success for monetary policy. I hope we do better next time. With the pace of expansion clearly picking up now, I think we should strive to do a better job this time of preventing an excessive rise in inflation. It's the responsibility of the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, to conduct monetary policy in a way that confirms expectations that inflation will remain low over time. 
Next month, the FOMC will complete $600 billion of asset purchases that were announced in November of last year. Barring significant unforeseen developments, this should be the high watermark for monetary stimulus in this cycle, with the focus going forward being on the timing and pace of withdrawing stimulus. While that timing and pace will depend crucially on how the economy behaves, I believe it will be important to remember the lesson of the last recovery, namely that inflation is capable of rising even if the level of economic activity has not returned to its pre-recession trend. And to prevent that, it may be necessary to initiate policy tightening well before the unemployment rate has fallen to a rate we would expect to see over the long run. One final set of thoughts. While our economy faces significant macroeconomic policy challenges, I think constructing an effective regime of financial regulation is likely to prove more difficult and perhaps more consequential as a challenge over time. In my view, the crisis we've just been through resulted largely from a mismatch between a regulatory structure designed for the explicit federal financial safety net, that is to say deposit insurance at banks and thrifts, and the extent of moral hazard induced by a much larger implicit safety net based in the beliefs that some firms were too big to fail. Given precedents that extend back to the Continental Illinois Bank case in the mid-80s and beyond that into the 70s, market participants have made inferences about what government protection might be forthcoming in future instances of financial distress. That is to say, which institutions were likely to be viewed by authorities as too big to fail. The lack of clarity from policymakers about that federal safety net grew in the decades leading up to this crisis. And it came about because policymakers hoped that a policy that was called constructive ambiguity would dampen market expectations of bailout while preserving the option to intervene if policymakers viewed it as necessary. Researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond have estimated, based on conservative assumptions, that the federal financial safety net now covers 62% of the financial sector, up from about 45% a decade early. And the vast majority of that is in the implicit safety net, outside the explicit deposit insurance scheme. Now, last year's landmark financial reform legislation this is a mouthful here, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010, seeks to close the gap uh, between the scope of, of regulation and the scope of this implicit safety net. Dodd-Frank gives regulators new tools to contain private risk-taking, and it seeks to limit the implicit safety net by empowering the, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, to liquidate troubled non-bank firms and by placing new constraints on the Fed's lending power. But under this act, the FDIC and the Fed retain considerable discretion to use taxpayer funds to limit losses to some creditors. This creates continued uncertainty about possible rescues, as well as gaps in our ability to provide clear, credible constraints on the safety net. In the near term, I'm fairly confident that regulators have a firm grasp on the industry, and they're taking strong steps to tighten risk management at regulated firms. 
But financial firms will have an incentive to bypass regulation, to take on excessive risks, and still enjoy some measure of implicit protection if they can get away with it. This desire to operate just outside the perimeter of regulation, but with implicit safety net support, is going to, prevent, is going to present ongoing supervisory and regulatory challenges for all of us. And it may make it more difficult to prevent or limit the magnitude of future crises. Ambiguity about the extent of federal financial support would make such bypass virtually inevitable. Unless we establish clear expectations about the federal financial safety net and live up to our commitment to limit government rescues, our financial system is going to continue to pose significant risks to growth. So let me try and conclude on a more optimistic note, returning to my earlier theme. We've come through an extraordinary period in our nation's history. Despite all those challenges, I think there's a good reason for an affirmative view, a positive view of America's future. But it depends on policymakers following coherent, sustainable, long-run policy plans, communicating those to the public and living up to those commitments. I look forward to working with my colleagues on the FOMC to try and craft those plans and follow through on those as, it, that, as, as we go into the future. Uh, ahead. Thank you very much for attending. Thank you for your time and attention. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. So, as advertised by Sally Green, my colleague, I'd be happy to take questions at this point. Yes, sir. Hope you enjoy your stay here. I have so far. Um, Arlington is a place that uh, sort of uh, uh, demonstrates the, you know, the upside of your forecast. I mean, signs of recovery can be found here, and, and we're doing uh, fairly well, and we have reason to think that uh, we will be doing well in the near term. Um, we're very much aware of the fact that that's not the case everywhere. I'm a little more interested, though, in your outlook long term and your optimism that I took, what I took to be optimism about the long term for the national economy. And specifically, I want to ask you to comment on two things. Uh, one, when you look at the, uh, the, the growth rates around the world that you're referring to, particularly in the, the world's two largest countries and uh, fairly soon to be, if not already, dominant economies in India and China, uh, the impact that that is likely to have on resource costs, where our economy is uh, you know, more and more one that has to import most of the critical resources we need to run anything. Uh, and in a, in a world of probably post-peak oil, if we're not already there, we will be very soon. And they're drawing out now at an increasing rate and will be at a dramatically increased rate uh, because of the improved standard of living there. Um, so there's that part of it. And then there's the flip side of it is growing economy elsewhere could be a good thing for us if there are markets for us. But of course, that's only true if we actually have something to sell them. So on this, the first part is the impact of us on particularly on resource costs, which could seem to be potentially crippling. Mm -hmm. And on the second side, um, is there a reason to believe that we're actually going to make out in this economy or are we going to continue what we are basically been doing, which is buying things from the rest of the world on money we have borrowed from them? Those are both uh, very astute macroeconomic questions. Um, so on the first one, um, uh, the prospect that um, strong growth in the emerging markets that I alluded to 
um, is going to put upward pressure on resource uh, prices, commodity and energy prices going forward. I think in the short term and in the medium term, uh, that's clearly um, that's clearly very plausible and, and clearly a reasonable outlook. Um, but I think in the in the longer run, I, I trust the price system in what's a fairly competitive and unrestricted market for those commodities globally uh, to provide the signals for economic activity to adapt over time. After all, we ran out of whale oil at one point. Prices went up. We figured out a sub some substitutes for whale oil. Um, so while it may seem inconceivable, it may seem hard to imagine just what's going to be the substitute now for all the petroleum products we use. Um, I think in the long run, what will happen is the price system will provide those signals to innovators uh, to find new ways to use less, new ways to do things without using anything at all, um, or find new places to look safely uh, and uh, responsibly uh, for new supplies. Um, now, that's not to say that there could be short-run disruptions along the way. Uh, these markets are forward-looking. And it's not just disruptions to current supply that, that can trigger uh, sharp price movements, but any anticipated disruption to supply in a market where demand is fairly inelastic can trigger a current price change, even if the supply disruption hasn't changed. So the, the potential for volatility and short-term economic disruption will always be there, but I'm confident in the long run we'll evolve and adapt uh, to those changing circumstances. The second thing had to do with what we make. And it's a, you know, it's a popular conception that we don't make things anymore. Um, first of all, I think that um, that does a disservice to uh, those in the service industry in our, our um, audience um, who provide valuable services to people all over the globe in many cases. Um, but secondly, um, it's a matter of comparative advantage at the end of the day. You know, you go back and you read your Ricardo, and it's, it's a matter of comparative advantage. So what is it that we're singularly good at? What is it that we, we excel at? What is it that we're, people are going to turn to us for? And at the end of the day, it's going to be our human capital, the stuff we know. It's going to be some stuff, you know, we're going to make stuff that you don't want to ship all around the globe, big things like concrete. Um, but it's going to be stuff that depends on skills. On, um, on the ability to innovate, on the flexibility of our economy, the fact that you don't need a lot of red tape to start up a business, the fact that you can take an idea, and, you, and there's just a myriad sources of funding. I mean, it may be hard to find a loan at a bank, but um, investors, um, you know, just abound, are looking for the next big thing they'd like to be a part of. And I think that dynamism and um, the, the incredible power and strength of our universities and research institutions, and research institutions more broadly, like the NSF in your county, um, in your location, are, are going to keep us essential to the world economy. There's going to be things the world is going to turn to us uh, for years to come. Uh, Dennis Horn, Holland and Knight, Washington. Um, the two elements of, of the that are not included in your core inflation rate, food and energy, are the two things that most people in the world need and don't have any alternative to. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that you have such confidence in 
the um, futures market for oil. But in terms of food, the prices of wheat and corn and meat have gone up dramatically, and much of that increase hasn't yet worked its, itself into the system. If mom-and-pop consumer find themselves with less disposable income and higher costs for food and energy in the longer term, first of all, what does that do to your optimistic projection? And second of all, does the Fed have any tools to deal with this? Um, great question. First, let me say about futures market. It's not that I have tremendous confidence in them. I have only limited confidence in them. I just don't have any greater confidence in anything else as a way of forecasting where those prices are going. So it's a matter of our uncertainty that we're always going to be at the limits of our knowledge of what's going to happen in the future. It's just hard to beat them. It's hard to find an algorithm to beat them as a way of forecasting future prices. There are tremendous risks, and I think our experience from 03 to 07 that I cited is a perfect example where the notion that inflation, which had risen in 03, would subside back to 1% again, was defeated by a steady string of surges in oil prices. Um, you, the dynamic you ske sketched out is just right. When food prices go up, um, you know, beef, range of um, foodstuffs go up, it takes a bite out of family income. They can afford less. It reduces the purchasing power of their paycheck. There's no doubt about it. And that sets back consum consumer spending. Consumer spending measured in real terms. And that sets back growth. Um, there's no doubt about it. Having said that, we've been through a period in the last few months of, fair, of sustained large increases in food and energy prices. And yet real consumer spending has advanced at a fairly healthy clip over the last six months. So despite that, people, it, it, you know, it's not large enough to, to take too much of a chunk so far out of their incomes. Um, I, I go back to just confidence that we can't have energy. Energy is not going to grow 10 percent. Energy prices aren't going to go up 10 percent a month forever. At some point, it chokes off demand too much. And at some point, it elicits more supply. Third thing I'll say is just to re remind you that, that there's a difference between some prices going up and all prices going up. Some prices going up is a change in the relative price. Beef is more ex expensive, scarcer, relative to apparel, say. So the relative prices have to change. What we at the Federal Reserve need to focus on is keeping the overall package of prices from going up, from surging, keeping that relatively stable so that there are, are cost decreases for consumers to offset the cost increases they find. In a healthy economy, you're going to get those relative price changes. We just have to keep it from affecting the broad average of prices seeping into other inflation. Over here on the left. Mm -mm. I'm Gary Shapiro, president of the Consumer Electronics Association. We're down the block, uh, and we represent 2,000 of the tech companies you talk about, which are doing a lot in terms of the innovation and the capital. Um, I love your analysis. I agree 100% with it. Um, and I feel you've described the situation. I wish you would just take the next step and say what we should do as a nation. You kind of hinted at it when you said, you know, the policymakers have to make the tough decisions. Because I feel five years ago, everyone in this room 
got those, you know, free, no nothing down mortgage solicitations. We all knew what was going to happen and none of us did anything about it. And I think we're at the same point now, uh, which is clearly unsustainable, as you correctly pointed out. And uh, obviously there's three choices, raise taxes, cut spending or grow through innovation and exports. Now, I have written a best-selling book on how innovation will restore the American dream. It's called The Comeback, and it's available now, but, which, which addresses these issues, actually. But, but I wish that someone in your position in the Fed would step up and say what has to be said to the American public. And I'm wondering what's constraining you. Nothing's constraining me. <laughs> Good luck with your book, Eric. Um, Thanks. Appreciate the endorsement. There were, there were two over here. Gentleman down front here. I thought there was a second. Good afternoon. My name is Ira Kalin. I'm a city council member in Fourth Church, a small neighbor of Arlington whose financial prowess we've been admiring for many years. Uh, the issue is actually part of your speech that I think may have been left out. And that regards the very serious issue, again, building off of the fiscal point, that's something that the other gentleman just mentioned, the fact that the fiscal situation of the municipalities, small ones, is deteriorating very fast. The national economy can grow quite well, and we can still go under, because we have organic costs that go up irrespective of the state of the national economy. And it's very difficult to get the conversation going in many of the localities, precisely because what is heard is the first part of your speech. And then it comes back and they say, we've been told that the economy is growing. We do not have to adjust our fiscal policies to do it because the Federal Reserve and others are saying, you know, we're over the worst. And we go, maybe it would be useful in part of your outreach to consider a component of the speech, because I can't tell you how serious it is. Uh, I understand how serious it is. That's a point well taken, very well taken, Councilman. Um, you, uh, state and low, I, I didn't put everything I could have into the speech, and, and I'll make room for that going forward. Um, you were in a terrible bind, and believe me, we understand it. Um, government spending more broadly is, is something about which the outlook's cloudy and uncertain right now. Um, I'm sure that's affecting the D.C. area particularly hard. Um, but the state and local sector is uh, suffering a tremendous squeeze. Um, the state and local governments suffer with a lag during a recession because tax revenues fall with something of a lag relative to economic growth. And in addition, you're, you're facing a federal government that's just been increasingly willing over the year to push expenses down to you um, without pushing funding down to you. Um, there's a huge overhang in a lot of municipalities of uh, um, pensions and health care, retirement health care benefits, um, a huge problem. Um, adjusting those to reality in a way that's fair and decent um, to both your taxpayers and your retirees is, is bound to be front and center. That has to be the first order problem if you look a decade or two ahead in your sector. And then aligning local services with local tax revenue, that's problem you face every recession, but it's this overhang of the uh, retiree obligations that I, my sense is, the, is, is sort of the thing that makes this more excruciating than past 
past cycles and with the retirement of the baby boom, you know, it's, it's just coming in a huge wave right now. So, um, you know, I apologize if, um, you know, my omission um, uh, detracted from attention to, to your plight. Good point. There. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Jorge Rivas, I'm the president of the Chamber of Commerce, Mid-Atlantic Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. My concern about what you have said is that for a long, long time, the United States has not considered uh, many groups. They have been invisible to the federal government and the Federal Reserve. I'm talking specifically about Hispanic immigrants, which are a substantial uh, segment of our population, and they are not factor in in any macroeconomic analysis. For instance, that's the reality. I mean, we cannot, it's not intentionally done, it's just don't understand it. Um, but we need to factor that because they are really uh, uh, going to be a drag on our economy if we don't begin, begin to address uh, the economic issues that affect them. In terms of consumer spending going up, I can tell you, I am just like you. We go to the supermarket, we go to the stores, and we see people buying new pair of shoes. That's the, that's the call increase in, in consumer spending, is trying to replace all the things that have wore out, wore out for a number of uh, years. Same goes with cars. Without federal stimulus, we would be in a worse condition, but people have to replace their cars because we depend on, on them as the means of getting to work and going to school. And so there's a lot of other things that we need to consider that are not factor in the usual traditional U.S. economic macro, macroeconomic analysis. And I think that is the flaw of our system, uh, is that our economies are not thinking with a, with a straight. You know, they, they are still living with old formulas, antiquated uh, models. Ja we compare Japanese recovery. Well, the only thing why happened is because we were the only only industrialized country is standing after the end of World War II. Today, it's a different set of circumstances. We have major competitors, and we're in trouble. While 50, 60 years ago, we were the leaders of the world. So we need to, to, we need to be sure that we're comparing apples with apples and not apples and oranges. Um. Thank you for those remarks. Let me say that um, we at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, I can't speak for my brethren, but I'd, I'd be surprised if it isn't the case for them as well, are very aware of the, the presence of Hispanic immigrants in our district, and we know where the populations are concentrated. Um, our community development um, area under Kim Zuli, um, in their work looking at um, uh, populations across our district, um, are aware of the special challenges of the Hispanic community. We would welcome learning more from you about their particular macroeconomic significance, but we're aware of places like in the Carolinas, uh, Sampson County, in, around Charlotte, around the Triangle area, um, around here where um, there are concentrations of Hispanic immigrants, and we're very aware of the, the effect they can have on some local businesses and, and local governments there uh, for social services and the like, um, and broadly the contribution they've made. Um, we're very aware of the special foreclosure problems they faced in Prince William County, just south of here as well. So we've done some work on this, but we'd welcome uh, dialogue with you and learn more. So why don't, why don't we come up and talk um, after the remarks today, and I'll... I'll hook you up with our good colleagues. Barbara, this, has, this might have to be the last question. 
Jeff, thanks so much for being here, and we'll look forward to having you in D.C. tomorrow. My question, uh, uh, really, uh, there was a comment that you made on what the Fed is doing uh, as it relates to the future uh, of the financial markets and the economy in general. And you made a comment that um, I'm just not quite as optimistic as you are, and that is that our, our policymakers, you trust our policymakers to get this done and to make the right decision. Given all the acrimony over the past couple of years that we've seen, I guess I want to know what the Fed's going to do to scare them straight, because I'm not convinced they're going to get there all by themselves. Um, so, like my faith in um, uh, futures markets, my faith <laughs> in policymakers is limited at times. I, I think this is why. So, um, uh, so let me talk about inflation first, which is totally unrelated to what you asked, but this will illustrate the germ of it. Um, we took strong action under Paul Volcker, took strong action again in smaller ways that over time had the effect of convincing people in the public, businesses who set prices, financial market participants that build inflation expectations into their security pricing algorithms, convincing them that we intended and were capable of taking action to keep inflation low and stable. Now, um, that constrains us. That means my hands are tied. If inflation goes up, we have to either do something or explain why we believe it's transitory. We haven't quite made the same journey in financial policy. And here, I, you know, I'm confident that we're, we're doing what we can to crack down on, in, you know, uh, deficient risk management practices now. But the problem will come when a hard case arises that we haven't prepared well for and a policymaker finds themselves having to choose between um, financial market turmoil, inconvenience, disruption to some creditors, or doing the right thing and letting the, the firm fail via bankruptcy and the established orderly procedures we have in place. That's where my trust gets a little limited. And I think that taking the time now to build um, practices, build commitment to policies that will limit our future discretion is the key to success. And that's, that's the point I was trying to make. Um, I wouldn't bet against you. Um, but um, I think that eventually we'll get there. Uh, it might be a little rocky on the way. Um, but in the meantime, I, I think we're okay for a few years. Um, how about just one more, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I know we've run out of time. The gentleman back there in gray, there's a microphone headed your way. A question on the declining value of the dollar. Uh, what definitive steps need to be taken by the Fed or others in order to reverse this decline, and what's the likelihood they'll be taken? So um, the standard thing to say about the dollar remains true, that um, uh, it is a consequence of the monetary policies we conduct and foreign nations conduct. Um, we conduct policy to keep the domestic purchasing power of the dollar stable or at least you know, falling at a steady rate. So that is to say, keep a low in inflation, a stable inflation rate. 
to divert to, to, to try and make the dollar do something it otherwise would not do would be to divert from our goal of keeping inflation low and stable. We've only got one arrow. We can hit domestic purchasing power or the federal, the foreign exchange rate. We can't hit them both. So the short answer is it's a consequence of the relative monetary policy stances of, of different countries. Um, it's having some deleterious effects, obviously, via the cost of our imports, um, but it's having some um, salutary effects um, on uh, prospects for our export businesses. So I'm sorry I can't offer some more comfort than that. Thank you very much. You've been a great, well-informed, astute audience.